0: All right, if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're we're getting close to the end of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at a passage that uh, if you've been around church, probably hardly any at all, Uh, you've probably heard um, at some point. But before we get started with our text this morning, I want to take a few moments and to explain a couple of things. So this is going to be one of those sermons with... Of a long introduction, just fair warning. We'll get to the text in a minute. Um, but it's, it's important because there's, there's a strange passage in this text that I think for most of us as Western readers, uh, we have a hard time understanding. And like I said last week, we always have to remember that, that every single verse, every single word in the Bible is for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. It wasn't written to Americans, right? And so we, we have to stop and do a little work sometimes to understand what was Paul's listeners hearing, what, what would they have understood based on their worldview that, quite frankly, is very different than our worldview. And this is definitely one of those times. In verse 12, it says this, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, each of these terms that Paul uses here uh, have something in common. They're used both in the New Testament and in Greek literature of the time to denote some kind of geographical dominion or authority. At times, these texts are used of humans, uh, to define a certain area in which a human would be a ruler of or have authority over, uh, but several instances demonstrate that Paul had spiritual beings in mind—what we would call demons nowadays, or angels, conversely, if they were good spiritual beings. Um, now, if if you've been tracking and, and paying attention as we have. Been going through the book of Ephesians, you may recognize that this isn't the first time these words have come up in the book of Ephesians. Back in chapter one, verse twenty, and we'll put this up on the screen for you. Paul said this that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. <clears throat> in the heavenly places, verse twenty-one, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul's using the exact same words that he's using in our passage today, way back in Ephesians chapter 1. So you may be asking yourself, well, where do these rulers, um, these, these evil geographical rulers, originate from? Where does... Where does Paul get this idea? Because again, I think for most of us, this is a relatively foreign concept. But you have to remember that Paul is a Pharisee. He converted to Christianity. And Paul has a firm grip on the Old Testament, right? This is, this is what has impacted his worldview. So the first natural place for us to look is to understand what Paul's trying to tell us would be to look in the Old Testament for any clues that that might help us to understand these verses. We see very early on in the story of humanity that there has been an evil force working against humanity. In the very first story we have of humanity, back in the garden, Eve is faced by a spiritual being seeking to get her and Adam to worship him instead of God. And we're promised after the fall that God would one day send his son to crush the head of our enemy, defeating him once and for all. But then a little later in Genesis, we have one of the weirdest chapters in the whole Bible in Genesis chapter 6. I don't have time to unpack all of that this morning, but here again, we see spiritual beings causing havoc on humanity, so much so that it leads to the flood of the world. Then again, after the flood, we see the children of, of Noah gathering together in a city, and they seek to build a tower to heaven, the Tower of Babel, right? This is, this is man trying to have a relationship with God on their own terms. They're not waiting for God to come to them. They're going to build a tower, and they're going to ascend to the heavens, and they are going to have a relationship on their own terms. They'll go see God whenever they want to see God. And God and some of the other spiritual beings come down and visit the tower, and it's here that God separates the people of the world by making them all speak different languages. We see this in Genesis 11:7 through9. Let me read that to you. He says, "Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech." So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they stopped building the city, therefore. It is named Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, we're not given much detail here on what this scattering for humanity means. But later, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is about to die, and he gathers all the people of Israel together, and he tells them, he gives them some more detail about what happened here at the Tower of Babel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7, he says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, right? He's going back to the Tower of Babel at that point in which God separated people. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This is another term for spiritual being, right? So because of their disobedience, God delegated out the authority over these different people groups to these different spiritual beings as a punishment. Think of Romans 1, right? You go after the lust of your flesh, what does God do? He just turns you over to them. He just lets you have them, and that's what we see happening here at the Tower of Babel. Man wanted to be man's own God, and so God turned them over to these spiritual beings, these sons of God. Now, if you have your Bible and you're following along, some of your Bibles may say the sons of Israel. I want to point out to you there was no such thing as Israel at this point in history. That's a much later interpretation. All of the original texts say the sons of God or the sons of Elohim, a spiritual being. Now, you may be asking, how, Dale, how do you know that Paul has this view of the spiritual world in mind? See, in Paul's mind, and in a Jewish mind in this time, there was this concept of these spiritual beings that had authority and rule over mankind, delegated by God, completely under God's control, right? But, but delegated by God. So how, how do I know that he has this in mind? Well, let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20-21, Paul says this in verse 20, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, spiritual beings, these other lesser fallen spiritual beings. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, in this one section of Scripture, these two verses, Paul is referencing back to some things that happened in the Old Testament. One, he's, recommend, he's, he's referencing back to Deuteronomy 32, 17, where it says they sacrificed to the demons that were no gods, to gods that had never known to new gods that had, all, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Here, Paul is referring to these spiritual beings as demons in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians. But then he also quotes from Isaiah 65, where two of these demons are named. Verse 11, it says in Isaiah 65, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune or literally the God of fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Again, literally the God of destiny. These were two false gods that were being worshiped by the Israelites instead of worshiping the God of the Bible. So in Paul's worldview, there was God. God is the Elohim of Elohim. He is the God above all gods, right? All-powerful, most powerful. But then there was this group of, of lesser spiritual beings, sometimes referred to in your Bible as gods with a little g. I don't know if you've ever noticed that as you're reading through the Bible. Sometimes God is capitalized, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they're referred to as demons, angels, dominions, principalities, powers, etc., The people at the Tower of Babel were were turned over to the rule of these lesser spiritual beings as a punishment for their rebellion against God. But God wasn't done, was he? No, God called Abraham where? Out of one of these territories, out of one of these places that had a, a lesser spiritual being ruling over it. He called him out to create his own people. Through the nation of Israel would come one who would reconcile every tribe and tongue to the God of gods. So this language we see here in Ephesians 6 would have made sense to his readers. We don't think like this, though, do we? We live post-enlightenment. We have explanations for everything supernatural. And if we can't explain it away, we just ignore it and say it's all a figment of your imagination. As one person put it, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And if most of us were honest, this is the way we live most of our lives. We are completely oblivious to the fact that all around us is an unseen spiritual world. This this is why this passage is so timely and important for us, as we'll see in a moment. The second thing I want to kind of clarify before we jump into our text is this. It's the first word of our passage. If you're like me, most of the time that you have heard this passage preached, it has been completely disconnected from the rest of the book of Ephesians. For, for most pastors, they take the word finally as though Paul now pivots and he's, he's turning away to talk about something completely different. Like, like this is a completely standalone point that he wants to make. And, and they just ignore everything he's been talking about up until this point. And because of that, you have sermons that are more focused on the individual pieces of armor than you do on the reason why we need the armor in the first place. So my hope this morning is to place this passage within the context of the whole book of Ephesians. So we can see why this this passage is so vitally important to us today. So let's read through this passage together, starting in verse 10. We'll try our best to read it as a church. evil day having done all to stand firm stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. All right. So let's start. I can say my goal in this is to set this passage about spiritual warfare in its proper place in the book of Ephesians. So I'm going to do this as fast as I can. I've been doing this several times over the last couple weeks, so I'm getting faster and faster at this. Paul starts the book of Ephesians by talking about the wonderful gifts that God has given us through Christ. All of the benefits that we have through being in Him. Then he talks about the creation of a new humanity out of all all nations. God has raised up one human, Jesus, right? This... Who, who is God become human. And then he moves into Ephesians 4, and it's all about what this new humanity is based on. We see that in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is like a, a messianic Shema. Now, a Shema was a, a prayer that was prayed by devout Hebrew men and women as they rose in the morning. And the first part of that prayer came from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so what we have here is, is the Messianic, the Christian version of the Shema, right? It's, it's one Lord, one baptism, one faith. And then Paul, he, he moves to what this new humanity needs is to have its unity protected. This new group of people that God is calling together from every tribe, nation, and tongue and, and creating into this one new distinct nation, This new humanity that's going to overcome all of the previous socioeconomic, all of the previous geographical and national boundaries, and they're going to love each other in the name of Jesus. You see the the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel? Instead of there being all of these divisions and all of these different groups of people, God is taking the nation of Israel through the son of David, Jesus Christ. And he is taking and blessing every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and unifying them into one glorious body. Jesus has created a new humanity, collectively called the church. And then he goes on in the rest of the letter to talk about how keeping that unity is going to be super hard. Ephesians is ultimately about maintaining that unity. And then, with that backdrop, we get to the armor of God, right? Unity is going to be hard. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. The Ephesians were known for wrestling. Even to this day, we have an inscription from Ephesus, and it it highlights their wrestlers. Like, WWE was like way back then. They, they were all about it back then, right? And, and that's the, the language that Paul is, is using because he knows it'll connect with these Ephesians who were all about their wrestlers. And when you think about wrestling, it's 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 a fight of endurance, right? It, it's something you've got to work at. And so Paul wanting us to maintain, to protect this unity, he calls us to put on the armor of God and to wrestle. So in context, the armor of God is primarily about how the spiritual powers of evil, which are, are connected back in Genesis to the scattering and diversity of humanity, they want to keep us divided. That, that's their goal. If we can keep humanity divided and fighting against each other, then we won't have time to focus and worship the one true living God. Talk about the Bible being relevant to our situation today, right? And so we need the armor of God because the armor of God is a corporate thing, not necessarily an individual thing. It's about protecting the unity. You don't really have unity with other people by yourself, do you? That, That unity happens as a group, as a collective. And so Paul says, you're going to need this if you're going to fight against these beings that are trying to separate us. And what Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians is that Jesus is now exalted above every principality and every authority. He is the chief one now. And so the emphasis... In Ephesians 6, is about unity. The armor of God and the spiritual forces that are fighting against that new humanity. And so Paul says, this is where the real fight is. The war is not with other people, but with these spiritual beings behind the people trying to create division. So how do we fight for our unity? What, what does spiritual warfare look like? Now, before I get into what Paul says in this passage, again, I want to take a second and talk about what spiritual warfare does not look like. Sadly, most Christians' understanding of spiritual warfare is more informed by movies like The Exorcist or other horror movies than what the Bible actually says. So if you read ahead and you were here hoping to come hear me talk about stories of people levitating off beds, their heads spinning around, I am sorry to disappoint you. Those of you that have been in different kinds of churches may have also came across whole ministries devoted to spiritual warfare and what's often called power encounters with these spiritual beings. But in Paul's explanation of spiritual warfare in our passage, he nowhere recommends that believers confront the supernatural rulers and powers. He wants to understand that's, that's the reality, but he's not calling us to go to war and to fight against them. The jurisdictional authority of these sons of God has been abolished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. The reality is what, what frames the Great Commission, the call to reclaim the nations, go into all the world and make disciples. See, the kingdom of darkness will lose what is essentially a spiritual war of attrition. We know this because the Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail and be able to withstand the church. And This is why believers are never commanded to rebuke spirits and demand their Flight in the name of Jesus. Because post-ascension, it's unnecessary. The authority has been removed by the Most High. Believers are in turn commanded to reclaim the territory by recruiting the citizens in those territories into the kingdom of God. This is what the Great Commission is all about. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, on application, because this is such an an, an important topic that is so often misunderstood and so often sensationalized that that we miss what Paul is actually calling us to do. And let me warn you, what Paul is calling us to actually do is incredibly hard. Like some of you might think like all that deliverance ministry and spiritual warfare stuff, like, ooh, that's got to be really hard stuff. I'm telling you, what Paul is challenging you to do this morning is way harder than any of that that you could ever imagine. So my application is going to center around answering three what I think are very practical questions this morning. The first one is, when do we fight for unity? When do we fight? Second is, what do we fight against for unity? You've got to know your enemy. If you're going to fight it, you got to know what the enemy is, right? Otherwise, you end up shooting your your fellow soldiers. And there's nothing friendly about friendly fire. Amen? Third, how do we fight for unity? So let's start with the first one. When do we fight? We see this in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul tells us the, the time in which we are to fight is in the evil day. That is when we are to be fighting. Now, what's curious about this is Paul doesn't use this phrase anywhere else in the entire of all of his writings in the New Testament. right? So it's not like I can say, okay, let's go look at three different places and see what he means by this term, in the evil day. But, even though it doesn't appear precisely like this, in Galatians 1.4, it says that we live in the present evil age. In Ephesians 5.16, it says the days are evil. And commentators usually point to one of two possibilities, or I think a combination of both is probably more accurate. First, and I think I've got a chart that will help you understand this a little bit better, is that it's the same as the evil days he talks about in 5.16 and refers to the whole of this present age between the two comings of Jesus. So in other words, that little red mark that I have listed there, we as believers are living in that period between Jesus' ascension and his return. And so most commentators would argue when you see a phrase like this, That's what he's referring to, is this this age that we live in where this present evil age hasn't quite come to an end yet, but there's an overlap because the kingdom of Christ has begun. Right? And and so we are living in that evil day. The second option is it points to critical times in a believer's life when demonic activity is especially intense. And focused. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you'll understand that the war can be different from day to day. Sometimes you feel like, man, that was a pretty good day. Be careful. (laughs) No joke, me and Emma are driving to church this morning. And and I'm, I'm going along and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, man, you know what? This morning, I mean, we had a little hiccup this morning, but this morning I haven't been too bad considering I'm preaching on spiritual warfare and the devil and all that. I kid you not, we come around a corner and a truck runs us off the road. And me and Emma are just like... And I'm like, stop thinking, Dale, stop thinking. <laughs> I'm, thinking I'm thinking it's too easy. And God's like, "Eh, ah, don't forget. O'Brien is probably correct when he says this. The... Apostle is not only speaking of this present time between the two comings of Jesus, but is also alerting believers to the dangers of the devil's schemes on critical occasions in this present evil age. There may appear to be times of reprieve for Christians, but they must not be lulled into a false sense of security thinking that the battle is over or that it's not especially difficult. They must always be prepared and put on the full armor of God for the devil will attack when they least expect it. So we fight for unity. When? Until Jesus comes back or we die. <laughs> Paul wants us to know to always be ready. Second, what do we fight against for unity? Verse 11 tells us that we need to be on guard against the schemes of the devil. That you, he, he, Paul wants us to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the Bible teaches that there are three forms of evil influence that lead us into sin and away from God. And these three enemies are simply described as the world, our flesh, and the devil. The Bible maintains a balance among all three of these evil influences. And the passage that brings out this balance most clearly is actually in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in, you, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. In this passage, we clearly see those three things: the world, the devil, and the flesh. This passage describes the the nature of our existence, thankfully, before our relationship with Jesus. Without Jesus, the Bible tells us that we, we are in a state of death we are completely alienated and disconnected from the one who gives life and we are completely subject to his wrath we're held in bondage by these three enemies the world the devil and our flesh if you're taking notes you can also see james 3:15 and 1 john 2:15 through 17 chapter 3 verses 7 through 10 the only way to escape is by entering through faith, into a union with our Lord Jesus Christ, which results in him bestowing gifts. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2, he's giving us the gift of life. But these three powers continue to exert influence on Christians after their conversion. Because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, as a gift, again, that Jesus Christ gives us, we, we now have the ability to say no to our flesh. But that's what it is. It's just the ability. It's not automatic. It doesn't mean that it's automatically going to say, oh, no, nope, we're going to not do that. But we have the ability now. So holding these three enemies in balance is, is key for us as we fight and wage war. Because it's it's foolish to attribute every manifestation of of evil to the human tendency to sin. Or to the influence of the culture. Just as it would be to attribute everything to the devil. Some of you maybe have grown up in more of a Pentecostal or charismatic background. And and in that background, every time they sinned, they would say, Oh, the devil made me do it. That every sin that I commit, there's some kind of evil spirit working against me. That's why I do it. And then if we can just find that unclean spirit causing this, we can identify it and we can cast it out, then the problem's solved. We have to attack all three and hold them in balance equally. Let's look at them really quickly. The flesh is the inner inclination that we have to sin. Paul sometimes calls this the old flesh, the old man that we wrestle with. It's the part of our fallen selves that's tainted by sin that will be with us until the day we die. It's our continuing connection to this, previous, this, this present evil age. We, we have an inheritance, we have a deposit, a down payment of the new age to come, but we are still bound and weighed down by this old flesh but as Christians we have a new nature and this new nature allows us to go against the the irresistible influence of the flesh because it was broken by the power of Jesus on the cross but nevertheless we we still find our old flesh if you're like me seeking to claim authority And we can only resist it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The world is, second, the world is the unhealthy social environment in which a person lives. This includes the ungodly aspects of culture, peer pressure, values, traditions, customs, philosophies, attitudes. The world represents the the prevailing worldview assumptions of the day that stand against the Bible's understanding of reality or biblical values. And if we're honest, our culture has a deep influence on the way we think and act. It tries to provide us with how we should live our lives. And we act toward the op- how we act toward the opposite sex, how we spend our money, what career we pursue in life, what we think about people who are different than us, As Christians, we need to embark on a on a lifelong journey of discerning where these unhealthy influences are still operative in our lives, rooting them out and adopting godly attitudes instead and values. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, "Man, I, Dale, I'm not in, I'm not influenced by my culture." Come on. Let me just encourage you to go watch some marketing videos on YouTube. I don't encourage you to normally to go to YouTube, but just go watch some Marketing 101 videos about brands and how they use marketing to influence you into the brands that you pick. The phone that you have in your pocket is because your culture has influenced you that that phone is better. Or, conversely, if you have a Samsung, it's because you hate Apple. <laughs> Either way, that's marketing too. And that's an influence of the culture. Third, the devil. Now, the devil's an intelligent, powerful, spiritual being that is thoroughly evil and is directly involved in perpetrating evil in the lives of individuals as well as on a global scale. He's not an abstraction. He's not a personification of an inner corrupt, our inner corrupt self. And in, in no way is he symbolic, like a symbolic representation of organized evil. Paul describes him in Ephesians 2, 2, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient, or the sons of disobedience. Paul also reveals that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This suggests his role as leader of the host of other powerful spirits, who assist him in carrying out his plans. The Bible shows us not only that we not only continue to struggle with our inner predisposition to evil, the powerful influence of our culture, but also with a personal supernatural being that is also bent toward doing evil. And it's important that we recognize all three influences it's also important to recognize that these three influences don't work independently of one another. In counseling, sometimes it's extremely difficult for me, and at times, if I'm being honest, impossible for me to make a distinction between the three in trying to understand a counselee's personal struggle. There are times, however, in counseling when we are able to see that one of the influences is more prominent than the other. Only through Jesus and being in Him, as Paul says, do we have any hope for escaping the power of these three influences. Let me give you just a quick example of what I mean by them all working together. Satan often works in the harmony with our flesh. For instance, if you're a person that struggles with lustful thoughts and looking at pornography, then Satan will exploit this tendency to his advantage. As the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he will stimulate the natural desire and introduce new thoughts and ideas. I can't help but think about the billboard that they used for a while to try to get people to stop doing drugs. And they, would, they had a picture of a line of Coke. And what they found is that people saw that line of Coke and went and found Coke. Because Satan tempted them and said, oh, doesn't that look good? See what you're missing? You haven't had that in so long. Don't you want a little bit of that? That's how he works. Here's a whole campaign to get people to stop using drugs. <laughs> and Satan's smart. He's like, oh, yeah. Don't you remember those days? You could, you could go back today. Today. Satan's primary concern is people. But if he can focus his energies on people of, of status and power and influence, where he can then exert a significant impact on the course of culture, he's happy to do that as well. Sadly, I can count too many. I don't even have enough fingers to count the times that I've heard the sad story of a pastor falling <laughs> Into sexual sin and leaving a wake of destruction behind him in the church that he was in. People that have just walked away from their faith because of one man's sin, one man's decision. Another way this can work itself out is with our, our friends and our family, especially in the church. It's very easy for us to begin to believe lies about one another, and I'll save that for how we fight in just a minute. So, when do we fight? Until we die, or until Jesus comes back? What are we fighting against? The world, our flesh, and the devil. We've got to know the enemy. Finally, so so now that we know when, and now that we know who, how. we fight for unity. I want you to notice his list of weapons does not include exorcism against spiritual forces of evil. We don't see that in this passage, right? Instead, here is what Paul considered the most effective weapons for spiritual combat against the forces of darkness. Starting in verse 14, truth. Know the truth of who you are in Christ for the powers of darkness will try to deceive you. Practice honesty and live with moral integrity. Paul says one of the most effective weapons we have is the truth. Because the enemy's gonna, he's gonna try to lie to us. He's gonna try to give us a half truth, right? You, you, again, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Is that really? If, if Eve knew the truth, there wouldn't have been a question. She would have known what God said. But that's how the enemy works he works with lies. As a matter of fact, the Bible says he is the father of lies. So Paul says we need to know the truth. The second thing in verse 14 is righteousness. Realize your status before God as one who has been acquitted of all guilt. Acquire personal holiness and develop good character. We should should do that, guys. But our righteousness comes from Jesus. And so when, when the enemy tries to attack us or the world tries to attack us and say, hey, You're not righteous. Look at what you just did. Knowing the truth means I look at them and say, I am righteous because Jesus is righteous, not because I'm righteous. Not because of anything I have done or not done, because of what he has done. And it's finished. He's sitting down. It's over. Verse 15, the gospel. Prepare yourself for sharing the gospel wherever God calls you. Why? Because again, spiritual warfare is all about expanding God's territory. And to do that, we need citizens in new places. And and so as we share the gospel, the very power that broke the control of all of these spiritual beings, we we are spreading the kingdom of God. So if you can't share the gospel with anyone, you're going to have a hard time in this spiritual warfare. Because that's what it looks like. It it looks like expanding the kingdom of God by by calling men and women into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So now, all of a sudden, down in Fort White, there's there's a little bit of light shining in the darkness. Over in O'Brien, there's a little bit of light shining in the darkness. Downtown Lake City, amongst all the gunfire, there's a little bit of light shining in the darkness, right? That's what spiritual warfare looks like. Verse 16, faith. Do not doubt. Believe that God will help you overcome. Faith is believing in what you can't see. The enemy loves to show you, and the world loves to show you all the things that you think you need. But God knows what we truly need and will give it to us when we need it. Verse 17, salvation. Be secure in your identity in Christ as one who has been saved, united with Christ, made alive, co-resurrected, co-exalted with Jesus. Know that you are saved. Verse 17, the Word of God. Devote your life aggressively to spreading the gospel, knowing Scripture, and applying it in every difficult situation. We we stop this passage at verse 17, but next week we'll look at prayer and perseverance as we look at verse 18. As two other ways. It's not difficult to see that instead of Showy power encounter, spiritual warfare in Ephesians six is about having a preserving faith, or a persevering faith, excuse me, in the gospel, and the word of God and living a holy, prayerful life as a follower of Jesus. The same strategy is evident in Paul's other passage about spiritual warfare that people like to quote. 2 Corinthians 10:3 through6, we'll put this up on the screen for you. "For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war. According to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power and destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, disobed- when your obedience is complete. Paul's description of how he fights the strongholds of darkness includes neither exorcism nor efforts to evict any kind of territorial spirit. There's no confrontation of supernatural powers among his personal strategy. Rather, successful spiritual warfare in this passage destroys arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and takes every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, spiritual warfare is being a faithful disciple who's not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4.14. Spiritual warfare is about leading a life obedient to Jesus, following his obedient example for the cause of God's vision for the kingdom on earth. Now that's not dramatic but an adherence to faith and committed discipleship is what constitutes spiritual warfare in New Testament theology to be honest this is a lot harder than yelling at a demon in Jesus's name i mean that's pretty easy i can do that i can do that yeah that's no problem but to live the life that paul is calling us to live faithfully, grounded in Scripture, ready to share the gospel, firm in our understanding of truth and our righteousness. As disciples, we need to prepare ourselves to avoid the demonization in the form of false teaching, temptation, and sinful life patterns. Paul's characterization characterization of spiritual warfare as adherence to the gospel and other scriptural truths and a prayerful prayerful, persevering life of righteousness are clear headed and right on target for how we should live our lives you want to be a soldier for Christ this morning being obedient disciples is what makes us fit soldiers for Christ The mission of every Christian is to carry out the Great Commission. By doing that, the kingdom of God grows. And the kingdom of darkness recedes. Every time a person comes to faith, a light turns on. And the more those lights turn on, the less darkness there is. This is what biblical spiritual warfare looks like. We have to understand, like Paul says, we, we have enemies. But those enemies have been defeated. Their authority has been taken. We, we don't have to go around trying to take that authority from them. It's finished. Now, we still live in that present evil age. That influence is still here. And we can't rest on our laurels and go, okay, well, it's not, it's not too bad now. I can stop reading my Bible Everything's going good right now. I, I can slack up on praying and going to church. I don't, I don't need to, to run the drills, right? That, that's, if you think about it in a military context, that, that's why the military drills, right? They, they go and they practice so that when the war happens, when the battle happens, they're ready. Sadly, so many Christians skip out on all the drills. They, they don't live a faithful, obedient life to Jesus And then all of a sudden they get thrown into an attack and they go, what's happening to me? But if they'd been reading the word and they knew the truth, they'd be able to pull out their sword and say, what you're saying is not true. I know who I am in Christ. My righteousness comes from him, not from me. And you're able to withstand the devil. In this evil age. Some of you here this morning, maybe you're you're going through one of those times. And it just feels like everything is he he, mean he's the world, the the culture, the devil, they're they're throwing everything, including the kitchen sink at you. I want to encourage you, go back to the basics of the faith. Get back in the word. Maybe sit down and talk with someone and, and help them to walk you through who you are in Christ so that you're able to stand against the attacks. And some of you are here and you're like, man, my life's easy. I don't know what I'm talking about, All this spiritual warfare stuff. Ain't nobody running me off the road, I'm fine. Please get in your word. You might not always have your Bible or your phone with you. Grab a few verses. At least have some pocket knives, right? Just something quick. You can jab at them, right? Be prepared. Be preparing yourself by being an obedient disciple of Christ. And So when the world throws some ideology or philosophy at you, You're able to look at that and say, that that doesn't line up with what God says. I'm going to go with what God says. I'm not going to be detoured by that. I know it's not exciting, guys. I know it's not showy. But it's actually what the Bible says. Are you going to do what the Bible says to do? Let's pray. Father,